0: Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional, Mexican, but are we ready? Uh, I don't reform friends in Argentina. And that's what
1: happened. Welcome to
0: 35 West. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Lincoln. Jenny is a senior advisor to the Carter Center on peace initiatives in Latin America. She has been an international election observer in 18 countries, including most recently in Bolivia. Jenny received her PhD in political science from The Ohio State University. She's also one of the most knowledgeable persons I know on Nicaragua, a true referente, as we say in Spanish. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Maggie, and especially during this very fast-moving time in Nicaragua.
0: I've had the good fortune of knowing Jenny Lincoln for a good number of years, more years than I care to admit publicly. But for our audience, Jenny, may I please ask you to share some highlights of your professional background, in particular as it relates to Nicaragua and electoral processes?
1: Thank you, Maggie. Well, first, I'm a political science professor, and in the mid-1980s, I was a Fulbright professor in Costa Rica, which gave me an opportunity to go in and out of Nicaragua at that time, including the election in 1984. So my time in Nicaragua goes back that far. I joined the Carter Center as a deputy director for Latin America in 1988, and almost immediately was thrown into the election observation of the Carter Center for 1990, which was an historic election observation that the Carter Center, the UN, and the OAS observed. So ever since that time, I've gone in and out of Nicaragua, maintained the friends and relationships and interest in Nicaragua, up to and including when I returned to the Carter Center as the director of the Latin America program in 2015. I had an interim as a professor at Georgia Tech, and I still maintain my connections there as well. But beginning in 2015, I was going back in and out of Nicaragua for the Carter Center again. And that sort of brings you up to date and shows you that actually in all my countries, Nicaragua is one of the top ones to have had
0: an historical interest in it. Let's talk about the situation in Nicaragua today. Daniel Ortega took office in 2007. Since then, he has managed to limit fundamental freedoms, silence the media, allow corruption to run rampant, and dismantle most institutional checks on presidential power. Jenny, help us understand how did Nicaragua get to where it is today? And how has the quality of democracy, human rights, and governance in Nicaragua been impacted in the past 15 years? And what does that mean in practical terms?
1: Well, at the risk of giving you an extensive historical lessons on Nicaragua, I'm going to start in 2018. Yes, Daniel Ortega was elected in 2006, took office in 2007 after running for president three times and was not successful after the 1990 election of Doña Violeta Chamorro. And in 2000, since 2007, he has been president. And in the context, the situation today also has roots in the fact that he changed the Constitution along the way So he could run indefinite number of terms. This election that's coming up this year would be his fourth term. So the situation in Nicaragua is very much based on an Ortega dynasty that he has created over time, since 2007. His current vice president is his wife. And so this has become really a a family dynasty. I want to start this story with an April 2018, when in a very surprising moment, the elderly people, the elderly people in Nicaragua rose up to oppose a surprising law on changing the taxes on social security. And this is not a normally politically active group, but it was then joined by students, university students, who chimed in on that protest and then developed their own. So in April of 2018, there was a societal eruption that was met with very, very heavy repression. Basically, a uh, mini civil war broke out in Nicaragua at that time. The government won, jailed students, students were murdered. And there was uh, a movement of exiles in response to this uprising. There was an attempt at negotiations, a very brief one that was facilitated by the church, but it didn't last long. And I remember the confrontation with Daniel Ortega and a particular student, very, very public at this attempt at negotiations. And after the Ortegas left very abruptly and not very happy, I wrote in my journal two sentences, one Ortega will go to the trenches, and two, it will become very bloody. And I'm crushed to say that that's exactly what has happened. The repression has grown, and the the number of exiles has grown, and the context for the forthcoming elections has become extremely, extremely problematic.
0: There are presidential elections scheduled for November this year, What are some of the key highlights of the electoral process that we should be aware of? And are there any conditions whatsoever to hold elections that meet any sort of international standards? What are the challenges for the candidates and and for the voters? Well, first, technically,
1: to answer your question, the presidential election is scheduled for November 7th. And so if you think about it, in any context, in any country right now, there should be a full-scale attempt at, at moving toward elections. There is an election administration calendar that was just announced in May, should have been announced in last February or even last November. And there is another date to put on the calendar, and that is July 28th, when the candidates need to complete their final registration, which would begin then a period of about three months campaigning before the election. But your question is, what is the reality check of the context right now? And that is one of incredible repression on the opposition. Repression to the extent that candidates have been jailed or under house arrest or under what they're calling basically house arrest de facto, which means there are at least three of the significant opposition candidates whose homes are surrounded by police and they're basically not allowed to leave their homes. That's five out of eight opposition candidates who have no freedom of movement. So right now, the political context for the elections is subject to physical repression and also a very, very new electoral reform law Which puts very, very stringent conditions and favors the incumbent government, Daniel Ortega and plans to, to run again for the presidency and puts the opposition at a disadvantage. I would also add to that context that there is extreme repression on journalists and journalists are routinely, are routinely attacked. Equipment is confiscated and there is no context right now that is conducive to credible elections. I'd like to sort of put this in a human rights and election standards context. The general principles for an approach to elections based on human rights means that the conditions for democracy and democratic elections must include these four things. I'll make it very simple. First, there has to be a freedom of peaceful assembly and association. That means you have to be out in public. That means you have to be able to have rallies in public and not be subject to arrest or closing down of that kind of space. Second, a freedom of opinion and expression and access to information without being censored or, in the case of journalists, having your equipment confiscated. Third is citizen security. The citizen must have the ability to move about outside his or her home and neighborhood to assemble and also be able to have secure access to the voting process. By that, I mean being secure and being able to go to vote on the days of election. Last, there needs to be an access to justice and a justice that is reasonable, honorable, and that represents the political will of people under a democracy. Those conditions do not exist in Nicaragua today. It's actually the opposite of, of those conditions and under which, under which, The opposition is trying, they've not pulled out, they've not rejected the opportunity. They are trying to compete
0: in an electoral process. Jenny, let's talk about the opposition. You know, when we think of opposition, we think of ideological differences, internal struggles, family and personal rivalries in in Nicaragua, uh, weakened blocks, but help paint a picture for us, give us a snapshot of what the opposition looks like in Nicaragua today and who are the players to watch?
1: Well, it's interesting that, especially right now, there is a potpourri of opposition to the Ortega regime. And, and you hit the nail on the head with the, the variety of types of opposition. I mean, what it, it's based on Ideological differences, internal struggles, personal commitments, even family rivalries. And the condition in Nicaragua today, and this has been the case since Ortega won in 2006, is that these different forces have not been able to unite. And in the the weeks, months prior to our, our situation now, there evolved three types of opposition. And one, I'll start with the easiest one. One was a handful of small political parties that were political parties, not the Sandinista Front, but not the FSLN, but they were allied, they are allied with the FSLN. So while they may be not FSLN, they're also not opposition to the current government. Then there, there were two two movements evolved, two groups of people, all with similar similar goals and similar objectives, but they allied around two poles. Around the Citizen for Liberty, Ceporelli in Spanish, Citizen for Liberty, and then the Blue and White Unity, the unidad, the unit. The blue and white really came out of the uh, struggle of t- April twenty eighteen. And the Seporele came out of a similar organization, but with just basically different personalities and different players. For a long time, there was a hope that they would unite and have a single candidate to come out against the FSLN in the election. Added to that was the addition of Cristiana Chamorro, who came out as an independent candidate, And said that basically her goal was to contribute to the dialogue, contribute to the discussion, the opposition discussion, and try to help form a unity approach to the election to contest the election against the Ortegas. Fast forward, the repression that I mentioned began just about a month ago when the Electoral Tribunal and the Ortega government began disallowing candidates. And if you look at today, they're basically picking them off one at a time. It's a political science lesson, but in order to get onto the ballot, you have to be a registered political party that is accepted by the Electoral Tribunal. Well, there were lots and lots of players and very few formally registered players. So these two coalitions each had one. They each had one access to the ballot. Well, the blue and white access to the ballot, that political party, the PRD, was disallowed recently by the Electoral Tribunal. So that was the first. So then they had no access to get on. Their their candidates had no access to get onto the ballot. So there was a movement, a last-minute movement, to have the other, the Seporele, have an open call for presidential contenders to register with them to have basically a primary process. So you ended up with eight pre-candidates, they called them, pre-candidatos. And they were getting ready to have their registration process and to start their primary process. And Cristiana Chamorro, the independent candidate, registered with them to do so. Within hours of her registering, the government lodged charges against her, very formal charges against her, accusations of money laundering and false administration, abusive administration. There's a laundry list, but basically it was to remove her from the electoral process. Now, let me stop this a minute and interject another example, another way to understand the repression. Last year, the government implemented three draconian laws. One was the law of foreign agents, which meant that all NGOs had to register with the government, open their books, have full exposure to the government, and declare openly declare that any income that was coming in from outside the country. Some NGOs decided to comply. Some felt that this was a bridge too far. And one of those NGOs was the foundation of former president Violeta Barrios de Chamorro, Christiana's mother, she was the executive director. And instead, the fundacion, the foundation, decided to close its doors, and not operate under those conditions. The second one was a law, basically what's shortened is called the law of treason, the law against the peoples. And this was basically that anyone who criticized the government could be brought up on charges of treason. The third was a cyber law that also removed a lot of privileges for individuals operating with you know, within the internet and the cyber world. So these three laws were very, very instrumental in the clampdown of the government and the repression. And that leads me back to Christiana Chaboro, because it was the foundation that is accused between 2015 and 2019 of money laundering. And the money laundering specifically relates to money that was received from the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, to foundation to train journalists, among other things. So you see how these cycles are all, all, all tied up in a web that is meant to control the population and lead to an elimination of the opposition and another presidency for Daniel Ortega.
0: On June 3rd, the Carter Center put out a statement condemning the Ortega regime's actions against Cristiana Chamorro. What are her current conditions? Does she have legal counsel? And what has been the response of international media?
1: This last week has been one that has been such a flurry of activity and action (laughs) against the opposition that it was almost hard to catch up. On Tuesday, Christiana registered for her pre-candidacy to compete in this primary exercise and was happy, happy, happy and was in the process. Hours later, these charges were made and the very next day, Wednesday, she was basically invaded by the Sandinista police There were trucks of anti-riot police and transportation police that arrived at her house and basically she was put under a surveillance for five hours. Her house was ransacked. All pieces of paper that could be found were removed from her home. All of her electronics, her cable was cut, her internet was cut she was left after five hours under house arrest with a bevy of police in her home and that was wednesday since then she has had no communication she is incommunicada she has had no external communication on her behalf her attorney has not been able to meet with her her attorney has not been able to get copies of charges that are against her. She did have a visit from her son and daughter and another visit from one of her brothers. But she is closed off from Nicaraguan communication, Nicaraguan society, and even from her family. That's her condition right now. Her attorney has been very vociferous about these conditions. And. And there has been an international outcry from everyone from the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights and the United Nations, the OAS, the Carter Center, governments in Latin America, most recently the very forceful statement from the Foreign Minister of Dominican Republic, European countries, the EU, there is an outcry that she should be released and should have due process to be able to confront whatever charges it is that she is facing. And so now I think your next question will be, and then what happened? And that's when on Saturday morning, another presidential contender, Arturo Cruz, whose father was actually a contender for president in 1984 against Daniel Ortega, and he actually pulled out of the election then because of the conditions. Arturo Cruz is a professor at incai He's known in political circles. He had been in Washington, DC, and on Saturday morning returned to Managua at nine o'clock in the morning. The Airplane landed and at 9.10. He was detained, he was held, in Comunicalo for several hours, and he ended up in a prison, in Chipote, with uh, his due process. Due process has also been revised under the Sandinista regime, and instead of having a hearing within 48 hours of when you're detained, you can be held up to 90 days before you may have a hearing. So right now, right now, in a very systematic fashion, the Sandinista government has undermined the opposition's rights to any kind of competition in the electoral process. One by one, ticking off the candidates. And now you have questions among the candidates who remain about their safety, their security, their sanity and how to continue to compete under these circumstances.
0: Two very good examples of how the Ortega regime is manipulating the electoral process. Let's focus on the reaction of the international community, please. Over the years, I've heard the phrase many times, la salida es nicaraguense. When I hear that, I cross my fingers and and hope and pray that the international community will, in fact, play a strong and meaningful role in Nicaragua. Help us understand what does that international community ecosystem look like in Nicaragua, and what instruments are available to them.
1: Well, it's very interesting because there is this international outcry about the current assaults on the presidential contenders. This is what happened this week, but this process has been deteriorating all along. Last year, the OAS passed a resolution at the General Assembly calling upon the government of member state, the Nicaraguan government, to provide the context for credible elections to pass a reform that would allow widespread participation and basically to eliminate any kind of repressive tactics. The date of that resolution ended, expired 31 May. And so that basically the government of Nicaragua did not pay any attention. The United States government has implemented sanctions, individual sanctions against members of the Sandinista government, up to and including the Vice President Ortega's wife. So the push uh, from the United States, the OAS, the EU has also implemented similar sanctions. The, the, the pressure from outside Nicaragua on the government has been visible and palpable, but hasn't made a difference. So your question is really key. What can happen now? La salida es nicaragüense means the exit to this, the route, the, the, the path to democracy has to be Nicaraguan. But at the same time, the Nicaraguan opposition to this repression is asking for help. And so the, qu- the key question is, uh, what can that be? I'd like to mention there's also an inside player that has been a bit silent on all of this. And that's that been the Nicaraguan business community, the investors, who have not pushed back on this. Uh, Last night on Carlos Fernando Chamorro's Sunday night television show that uh, wraps up the news of the week, it it, it ended with a look at different business community leaders and said, "And, and what is their reaction? And then there were the sounds of crickets chirping. And so there's a mixed answer to this. There still has to be a Nicaraguan response. But for democracies in the hemisphere and in the world, there has to be an increase in this outcry calling the government of Nicaragua to task for basically the crimes against human rights, the electoral process, and undermining the democracy that the Nicaraguans
0: deserve. Jenny, is there anything we did not cover that you would like to add?
1: I'd like to add a personal note for Christiana Chamorro. She is one of the strongest women, the strongest persons I've ever known. And I am deeply, deeply troubled that there could be such a personal assault on her integrity. Christiana was 23 when her father was assassinated. Her father was the editor of La Prensa and stood up against Somoza and was assassinated. The Chamorro family has dedicated its life to the well-being of Nicaraguans and, and, and the Nicaraguan government with Doña Violeta, her mother, as president. Christiana's husband was tragically killed a few years ago. And so this this human being has weathered, she has weathered personal tragedy, she has weathered the Sandinista revolution and the Contra revolution and all the things in between in Nicaragua which bring her today to considering a run for the presidency. And so I think she is a symbol And she's certainly being recognized as the symbol of the struggle against the repression of the current government. And so that's one thing I would like to mention. She and her employees from the Fundación who are also in prison right now with charges that have are unsubstantiated and no hearing. And so there is no due process for them either. So there are now political candidates, opposition candidates, human rights leaders, people in exile who are all trying to figure out what is the salida Nicaragüense, what is the route for Nicaraguans to restore the semblance of democracy that they used to enjoy and would like to enjoy again.
0: Jenny, I appreciate so much you taking the time to speak with me here at 35 West. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Maggie. Thank you to CSIS. And thank you for using this platform to broadcast the crisis in in Nicaragua right now.
0: For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.